Okay, the uh, Cunningham family uh, has an announcement to make this morning. Uh, We have decided that uh, being a pastor is not enough. Uh, Being a headmaster is not enough. Abby running her her own counseling practice, that's not enough. Raising four rambunctious boys, one of whom is currently potty training, that's not enough. Uh, School, homework, soccer, flag football, none of this is enough. No, we have decided that we also need a dog. Why not? So, almost impulsively, we bought a dog yesterday. Yeah, her name is Millie. I'm sure you'll be hearing about her a lot in uh, subsequent sermon illustrations. But for now, I just want to point out the obvious here. That this is going to change everything. Uh, The moment... She entered our home last night. Things became necessarily different. Two nights ago, we slept great. Last night, we didn't. Two days ago, going about our normal routine. Um, Today, our normal routine, we'll be making sure she does not potty in our house and do what dogs do. Yesterday, our budget was pretty much manageable. Today, I've got to figure out how to build in animal costs Somehow, a dog entering your home is an unavoidable reality that everyone in the home must now reckon with. It changes everything. And as we turn to our passage this morning, we are going to see Peter make this same point on a universal scale. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth entered into this world, entered into history, and the world would never be the same again. His reality is an unavoidable reality that everyone has to deal with. And the reason we must deal with Jesus, according to Peter, is that Jesus happens to be our God. And that changes everything. He's just too big to ignore. You don't have to reckon with the billions upon billions upon billions of people that inhabit our history. But if one of those people happens to be the God of all people, then all people must reckon with that one person. This is the thrust of Peter's sermon. He presents to the world a newfound dilemma with the coming of Jesus Christ. The Jesus dilemma that we all have to face. And I want to help us do that this morning by just answering two very simple questions. Who is Jesus And what will you do with Jesus? Does it get simpler than that? Who is Jesus? Verse 11. While he, that is the man who was healed last week, and from Sunday's sermon last week, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our power or piety, we have made him walk. So the man from last week is is literally clinging to Peter, much like those healed by Jesus clung to him. And the crowds are flocking to them in amazement, much like the crowds flocked to Jesus. But what's different is that Peter immediately wants to make it clear that there is nothing special about him or powerful within him. Now, this is, again, in contrast to the miracles of Jesus. When Jesus performed a miracle, he had no problem receiving the credit and even praise. 
And so what Peter wants to do is get the crowd from there where they are to where they are in the Gospels, which is directing all this at Jesus, the worship off of himself and place it where it belongs. But he has his work cut out for him. Because this audience, not too long ago, was shouting for the crucifixion of that same Jesus that he now has to convince them is their God. So what he does is he starts with the God that they have always known. And then he shows them, skillfully argues, that Jesus is that same God. Let's watch him do it. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now that statement itself alone is a profound assertion that we take for granted. First and foremost, it assumes there is a God. Now I, I understand that in the world we inhabit, we, don't, um, we can't necessarily assume that anymore. I talked about some of that in my podcast this week. Uh, that's no longer a basic assumption. However, for our purposes, I am just going to assume it. It's not that I'm avoiding the question, it's just that I don't have time to argue for it. So I am just assuming, and I, I think most people, um, I don't know if we are infected by all-out atheism uh, as much as kind of this baseline agnosticism that is like, you know, there's probably something behind it all, but I'm not sure what it is, don't even know how to know that or anything like that. Well, the revolutionary and very audacious claim that entered into history with a man that we see here named Abraham was that, some, that the something behind it all is one exclusive God. Abraham is the introduction of monotheism into the world. Um, A very uh, profound and revolutionary concept in his time. I suppose Adam was the first introduction of God to the world, but what I'm talking about is post-fall and the proliferation of false worship and differing religions. God, in a sense, reintroduces himself to the world through Abraham. And Abraham's revelation was not just that his God was the greatest of all gods, which is that, that was the common thing of the day. The different, different um, tribes, different cultures, different ethnicities, they had their own gods. And it was kind of this competing battle of whose God is the stronger one. Well, Abraham's assertion was not that his God was the greatest of all gods, but that his God was in fact the only God. And all other God claims were false and idolatrous. And to this day, that monotheistic view remains controversial. I know it's not controversial to our culture, which is so influenced by a monotheistic vision of God. But it is still controversial. If you want to paint the broadest uh, brush strokes when it comes to religions, you essentially can put... Uh, monotheism in one category and then every other religion in another. It truly is that unique of a claim. Every other religion has multiple gods or perhaps would um, have the view of everything behind it is, is, is not a god. It's an impersonal energy or force or even some uh, religions would call us gods. Um, on and on you can go with the options and then there's Judaism and Islam and Christianity with the exceptional claim, no, in fact, there is just one true God and it's ours. 
Now, what I'm going to do here um, is assume monotheism as well um, versus all other religious concepts. You can research that on your own and see why, philosophically speaking, monotheism is not just compelling but necessary. William Lane Craig's really good at that, just the classic theism, apologetics, and so forth. But again, I'm just going to make that assumption too. So I'm making the two assumptions that Peter is assuming here, that there is a God And there is only one God, specifically the God of Abraham. And so what we are left with is Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all of which claim to be the true religion of Abraham. Now, of course, Islam uh, is not on the scene at this point in history, uh, but that was Muhammad's claim that, that he was the true prophet of Abraham's religion and thus jumped into the monotheistic fray. And now 1.8 billion people believe him. Um, so that's certainly worth considering in our time. Am I doing something wrong here? Bring it down? Good. All right. But in our passage, what's going on is that Peter is speaking to an exclusively Jewish audience that is wrestling with this new idea um, the inception of Christianity. Uh, he's not obviously talking Islam versus Christianity versus Judaism, but it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, both in our passage and still to this day, the dividing line that is in the text remains the same. And it's very simple. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? The Abraham question now comes down to the Jesus question. So let's look at Peter's claim. He says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. What he's saying here is the God that we have always known and believed in and worshipped. The one true God has glorified his servant Jesus. That word glorified is a divinely exalted word. He's saying our God has declared Jesus as God. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied, again, listen to the language, the holy and righteous one, divine language attributed to Jesus, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed, listen to the language, the author of life. Peter's referring to Jesus as the very creator of life. So, the glorified one the holy and righteous one, the author of life three times in three different ways, Peter is contending that Jesus is your God. Holy, completely unthinkable to the audience, and to be honest, still unthinkable to so many today. But Peter has something that makes the unthinkable undeniable in his mind. Continue on. Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. How is it possible that Jesus could go from being viewed as a crucified criminal to exalted God? How is it possible that the very ones who so quickly denied and abandoned him are now worshiping and proclaiming him? How is it possible that a man who left no writings, no family, had no place to lay his head, no possessions, could then become history's most preeminent figure? 
How is it possible that a deeply ingrained Abrahamic religion with countless generations of traditions would so radically change in a matter of months? How is any of this possible? This is what historians wrestle with, with the inception of Christianity. How is this possible? One and only one reason, God raised him from the dead. As we have already seen in Acts 2, as we see here in our passage, and as we will see again and again, the resurrection was the foundation and motivation of everything in Acts. But God raised him from the dead is going to show up five times in the sermons. Essentially, the apostles are going to say this, 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 yeah, but God raised him from the dead. It was their answer to everything. We know. They say, we, 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 we are witnesses that Jesus is risen. Therefore, we know Jesus is true. Therefore, we know Jesus is our God. So good old classic philosophy gets you to monotheism, the God of Abraham, and the resurrection gets you to Jesus as the true revelation of the God of Abraham. Jews declare him a false prophet. Muslims declare him merely a prophet. The resurrection declares him neither. He is God as his own prophet. So who is Jesus? Peter's contention is that Jesus is God. Your God, my God, the God of heaven and earth. Which immediately leads us to our second question. If Jesus is God, we have to immediately say, what will we do with Jesus? And that's what happens. At the revelation that Jesus is God, Peter's sermon takes on a tone of urgency. Let me read this part, the second part here in its entirety, and then I'll explain. Um, It's one big argument. Let me just read through it, and and then we'll go back, and I'll help us see what it's talking about. So pick it up with verse 19. Here's his application. Repent, therefore... And turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until a time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of prophets and of the covenant that God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant in resurrection, raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Obvious a lot, obviously a lot going on there. Let me simplify it as best I can. First and foremost, his, his main application is repentance. That is the response. What is, what is my response to Jesus God? Repent. You see that? Um, it's bookended here. Uh, verse 19, repent therefore. And then he gets into the prophets and so forth. And then he closed the sermon, verse 26. Turn every one of you from your wickedness. And in between the call to repentance is our Old Testament passage this morning. Moses, um, that, was, that was from Moses, and Moses and Israel, um, it, it, you may know this, had a very problematic relationship, you could say. 
Um, it was an ongoing cycle of submission to his leadership, rebellion against his leadership. Submission, rebellion. But at one point, he famously said that God was ra- would raise up a prophet after him and the stakes would be much higher with this one. It won't be, Moses was saying, it won't be a listen, not listen, listen, not listen type of relationship like they had with Moses. It will be a once and for all decide if you will listen or not to this prophet. If you listen to him, the passage says, you'll be saved. If you don't, you will perish. It's as simple as that. And Peter's contention is that Jesus, in Jesus, this is now fulfilled. There are no more prophets to listen to, for the greater prophet has spoken, and his word to us is himself. Unlike the prophets of Israel that spoke on behalf of God, Jesus is God himself speaking. And so it is in him, in Jesus, in his reality that we all must now reckon with. What will you do with the reality of the risen Jesus? Peter's plea is that you would repent. Now, repent of what? What, do we, what have we done? What have we done to Jesus? The point, in some ways, that Peter's making here is, when we say, what will you do with Jesus, the point that Peter's making in the sermon is that you've already answered that question, and it's that we've killed Jesus. Verse 14 again. But you denied the holy righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. Now he's talking directly to those who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover and shouted for the release of Barabbas and the crucifixion of Jesus. But we know from scripture, theologically speaking, that we are all culpable in the death of Jesus Christ. He bleeds because of all our sins. And in this way, his blood is on all our hands. When you read the crucifixion stories, you can easily place yourself in the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You were the, you were the soldiers that beat him and, and nailed him to the cross. You were the ones that mocked him. All of us read those accounts with us standing in the shoes of those who killed Jesus because it is our sins that made him bleed. We have to remember when it comes to this thing called sin that first and foremost, it is vertical, not horizontal. It most certainly does wreak havoc horizontally, deeply harming ourselves and others. Yes, of course, it hurts the world. But ultimately, sin hurts God. It is an offense against God. And Jesus is your God, is Peter's point. And so if you want a picture of the severity and the heinousness of our sins, then look no further than Calvary's massacre. Brothers and sisters, you killed God. And I did too. That's what has landed on the crowd in our text. And that's what I want to land on all of us too. Tremble at what we have done to Jesus. And even more so, tremble that Jesus is back from the dead. Do you know why I say that? You know, you know what they were thinking in that crowd? This, this resurrection thing, this is new news. This is big news. 
Here's what they were thinking in that crowd. They connected the dots. Okay, Jesus is God. Wait, a few weeks ago, we killed Jesus. And now you're telling us Jesus is back from the dead? Uh Uh-oh. That's not good. He's come back to get us. He's come back to enact his just revenge for what we have done. That's what one would naturally assume. If Jesus is back from the dead, well, surely he's come back for those who killed him. But Peter has good news. Literally good news. He has gospel. To announce to them and to us. Jesus has not come back from the dead with vengeance, but with an offer. Here's his offer. Peter says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That the times of refreshing, not vengeance, not revenge, but a time of refreshing may come from the presence of the risen Lord. Your sins, what you have done to Jesus, can be blotted out. Literally as if they never happened. Could you imagine their relief? We need only to repent. We need only to turn back. We need only to embrace this Jesus and apologize for what we have done to him and he'll just blot it out. And Peter is saying to them, yes, like it never happened. And he says the same to us this morning. Verse 25 is important. You are the sons of prophets. Does this Jewish stuff relate to us? It's an exclusively Jewish audience. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and this is the part that he points out of what he said to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he's back to Abraham where he started saying to the sons of Abraham that the goal all along was that all the families of the earth are to be blessed by the God of Abraham. And in Jesus, that blessing is now made known to the world. So now it's on us like it was on that Jewish crowd in the day. What will you do with Jesus? More specifically, I suppose, what will you do with what you have done to Jesus? Therein lies the inescapable dilemma. Jesus is your God. You have killed your God. What are you going to do about it? Here you have two options. Perish for what you have done to Jesus or be forgiven by what you have done to Jesus. If you are not a follower of this Jesus, perhaps he has never been presented to you with such a a stark dilemma. But I'm telling you, This is what it is. There is no neutral ground here when it comes to Jesus. I fear fear you may conceptualize Jesus as merely a religious option that you may or may not want to consider for your life, but he isn't an option. He is your God. And eventually, even if that be when we stand before God, you're going to have to reckon with Jesus. So I say, please, with the same urgency of Peter in our passage, I know it's an ominous passage. You can hear him just pleading from it. 
with that same urgency, I plead with you in his name, reckon with him this day. And this is the reckoning. The death of Jesus will either be your condemnation or your liberation. Perish for his blood spilt or be forgiven by his blood spilt. Why in in heaven's name, literally in the name of heaven, why wouldn't you choose the latter? Repent, repent to Jesus, apologize for what you have done to Jesus and be forgiven by the very death you caused. And to my fellow lovers of Jesus, who to this very day still mourn with me for what we did to the Jesus we love, to those of you that it breaks your heart what you did to Jesus, I want you to know that that is appropriate and right. Just don't let that mourning turn into anxiety. Brothers and sisters, it is truly sad what we have done, but it is equally true that we have not done it. We did it, but what we did is blotted out. We have no problem believing the former, but oh, how we struggle to believe the latter. But listen, I studied this passage this week, and from what I can tell, the best interpretation of blotted out is blotted out. I just don't have a different way to interpret. You could try to come up with one, but I think that's the best interpretation, so let's go with that one. Your sins are no more. Non-existent. What you have done to Jesus has been totally completely and eternally forgiven by what Jesus has done for us. He's not mad at you for what you have done. He has used what you have done to forever be glad with you. Let me thank him. Jesus, we, you owe us nothing. We killed the author of life. We've sinned against our God. You owe us nothing. And you came back from the dead and we should expect vengeance and yet you offer forgiveness. We are undone with gratitude to you, Jesus, at the thought that is blotted out. We have heard that proclaimed in a sermon. Now proclaim it in the sacrament. Fill us, Lord Jesus, with a gospel that says your sins are no more. In your name we pray. Amen.